When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey there, this episode contains just the tiniest bit of salty language. Okay, here's the show. There's a couple of things I need to tell you about my guest today. His name is Ellie Mistal. The first thing you need to know is that he went to Harvard. Twice, actually. College and then law school. Second thing you need to know is that he's black. That means he's deeply familiar with people questioning his credentials, how he's gotten to where he is now. I have heard that since I set foot on campus in Cambridge from a certain kind of white people. And that gets damn frustrating because I can standardize test you into the goddamn ground. You don't want to come at me on a test, all right? Maybe, may, you know, you want to do some math? Okay, maybe you, you you do not want to come for me on an LSAT or an SAT or a GRE. I will embarrass you and your family. Um, and having to hear white people not get that my whole life has been frustrating. These days, Ellie writes for The Nation, edits the blog Above the Law. And in the last week, he has been thinking a lot about college admissions how we decide who's in and who's out, how that conversation can so quickly devolve into a fight about how deserving you are, especially because his alma mater has been in court trying to preserve its very particular admissions process. The anti-affirmative action group Students for Fair Admissions filed the lawsuit in 2014. The trial sparked protests from both sides. The plaintiff claimed Asian American applicants have the best academic records, but the lowest admission rates among any race, because according to the group, Harvard raises the bar for Asian Americans and lowers it for other races. You might have heard about this case. It's about affirmative action. A group of Asian American students sued after Harvard rejected them. They said they were qualified, but the school didn't let them in because of their race. A judge in Boston just decided those students didn't prove that case. But during the trial, all these details emerged about how Harvard sorts and rates its applicants. One of the ratings is school support. That means the uh, that that basically is a measure of your references, right? Like your teachers and guidance counselors and whatever. And Asian-Americans were scoring just a tick lower than white students were scoring on this metric. Which, when you think about it, is shocking because Asian-Americans are scoring so much better than their white counterparts um, in terms of test scores and extracurriculars, right? So why is it that teachers, when they're writing their recs, are kind of like, ah, Johnny's okay, If they're Asian-American, right? But if they're white, apparently, they're like, oh, my God, Johnny, he is a superstar. He is going to rule Facebook one day. Like, like, what the hell is that? That is called implicit bias. The problem is this case wasn't about addressing bias. It was about affirmative action. And affirmative action is a system with flaws. A system this lawsuit wants to destroy, not fix. In this case... The judge made a decision that was a real defense of diversity. It was a beautiful decision. 
Yeah, I mean, you you really said it was like moving. It's one of it's one of the best legal defenses of affirmative action I have ever read, and I've read a lot of them. <laughs> but she also felt the need to go to the mat completely. You know, she said that Asians didn't have a grievance here. She said that you know testimony from admissions officers showed that there was no discrimination against Asian students. She's fighting the long war. She's fighting the war that's been brought to her table as well. Like, remember, we keep saying Asian American students. The people complaining in this lawsuit, they were organized by white conservatives, a man named Ed Blum, who has made it his life's mission to end affirmative action. The Asian American students, plaintiffs in this case, had their point co-opted by a white conservative movement that is hell-bent on ending affirmative action. Today on the show, how the original intent of affirmative action has gotten twisted and warped, especially when it winds up in the court. For the last 40 years, critics have been chipping away at this policy, which is why Ellie is worried about where this case goes next. I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next? Stick with us. This episode is brought to you by Discover. When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Once you start looking at the way a school like Harvard picks students, it's so selective that Ellie says, of course it's biased. It has to be. They get about 35,000 applicants a year. The question is, who's benefiting from those biases and who's losing out? Because sure, there's evidence that if admission were doled out based on grades and test scores alone, Harvard would admit twice as many Asian students. But there's also this statistic, that 43% of white admissions are legacies, donors, athletes, the conclusion is inescapable that there must be at least some Asian students that have a legitimate beef with how they are being selected. Bias is baked in. And Ellie says it starts as soon as an application comes in the door. It's not affirmative action that is keeping Asian American students out of Harvard. It is Harvard's own way of skinning the cat, right? Um, The first sort that Harvard does is to sort people into geographic regions. For lots and lots of people, that seems like a benign sort. It is not a benign sort if you are a non-white person. Because if you know anything about this country demographically, we know that non-white people are not evenly distributed throughout the country. Non-white people are not evenly distributed throughout any state. We are clustered. We stay. We are in our communities. We, we stick together. Right. So if if you are a high achieving Asian student in your Northern Californian sort, in your Northern Californian docket, as Harvard calls it, guess what? You're competing against a whole lot of other high achieving Asian students. Right. God forbid you're coming out of San Francisco as a merely middling achieving Asian American student. You know, you aren't going to get noticed. Whereas if you're a high achieving Asian student coming out of 
Branson, Missouri. People might notice that. If you're a high-achieving Asian student coming out of Corpus Christi, Texas, people might notice that differently, right? So that first geographic sort is a sort that not only forces high achievers clustered on coasts and in high-income zip codes to compete against each other before they really get to compete against the rest of the, the class, it also unbelievably benefits white students. Because white students are everywhere. Because white students are everywhere. And if you have a commitment that you're going to have the kids from Idaho and the kids from Montana and the kids from Branson, well, then guess what? That's overwhelmingly going to end up being a spot for a white kid. There was this moment when the dean of admissions testified, Dean Fitzsimmons, and he talked about this geographic sort because Harvard sends invitations to people from different parts of the country because they really want people from, say, Nevada to think about Harvard and you know get this geographic diversity. And it was interesting because it went even beyond what you're saying, which is that an Asian-American student in Las Vegas wouldn't get one of these invitations even if he got a higher score than a white student in the same area. And it was this idea that there is someone who is more Nevadian than an Asian-American Nevadian. It was almost a ding to yeah. be from there. Yeah. It was disturbing. It wasn't. It's not. It's it's discriminatory. Um, but absolutely, when Harvard is looking at making sure its class is diverse geographically, they also seem to want, by the dean's own admission, People who represent what we think of as their geography. Cowboys. Which, you know, is a choice. Is a choice that I is a choice that I'm not sure that we should be comfortable with. I'm not sure that they should be allowed to do. This kind of sorting. It's not the only evidence of bias that Asian American students might face during the application process. There's another rating that they have, the personal personality rating essentially that's basically a measure of your interviews with you know because when you go to when you apply you have to interview with an alumni and, whatever, and the, right? yeah right the interviews are with people who are harvard alums so right. they are people who have traditionally been the face of harvard so they are more likely to be older white people right and the the personal rating is a measure of those kind of interview scores and again asian americans scored slightly lower do Asian Americans have worse personalities than white kids? I don't think so. I've met white people. I, I don't think that you can say that that there is some kind of like Asian personality that isn't Harvard material. Whereas, right? That that's not right. That that slightly lower metric is another reflection of implicit bias. Trying to get Harvard to move off of some of these metrics that have implicit bias, or at least recognize and correct for the implicit bias in these metrics would actually be useful, would actually, I think, help to cut some of the discrimination that the Asian American community faces. But that's not what this lawsuit is about. Lawyers for the plaintiffs argue that Harvard hasn't done enough to achieve a diverse student body using race-neutral admission standards. The, the arguments that the plaintiffs made were, were made to attack affirmative action as a policy not to attack the discrimination of Harvard's admissions process. Those are two different things. And the reason why the judge's decision came out the way it did and sounded the way it did is because she is fighting that 
battle that will eventually be appealed to the Supreme Court. She is fighting this battle on affirmative action grounds because that is the case that was presented to her and not on discriminatory grounds, which is what we actually should have been talking about if we were going to have a whole goddamn lawsuit over it. In order to understand why this lawsuit was filed in the first place, you've got to understand that the courts have been fighting about affirmative action for four decades. This all started in 1978 with a case that made it all the way up to the Supreme Court, Regents of the University of California versus Bakke. Alan Bakke had applied to medical school twice, was rejected both times. He blamed the fact that the school had set aside 16 places in each entering class for qualified minorities. And then he sued. Up until Bakke, affirmative action had been thought of as a remedial kind of restitution for slavery and oppression. It was a much more of a point and click. You did not allow black and brown people into your school for hundreds of years in the case of a Harvard, which has been pumping out white people since the 1600s, right? Like you did not allow black and brown kids into your hallowed institution for hundreds of years. And now you're going to change. And now we're going to make you change. Now you will start admitting black and brown people because... Right. And that was a really powerful rationale for affirmative action um, for the first, you know, 10, 15, 20 years that the policy was instituted. Backey basically disregarded that. Backey threw that out. Backey threw out the notion that affirmative action was a remedial policy to overcome the legacy of slavery and oppression and instead adopted a, a, a secondary reason, a reason that was always there, but, you know, had been a lesser reason for affirmative action, that diversity itself is a good thing that helps all students, not just the black and brown students that are getting admitted, but the white students that, that are getting to learn with them. Since that came down, study after study after study has shown that they are right. Study after study after study has shown that diversity enhances the learning environment for all peoples. And so post backy diversity has become the main, um, the main centering for affirmative action as opposed, to, as opposed to racial remuneration and reparations. Conveniently, it feels less radical. It does feel less radical that way. Making diversity the goal of affirmative action was controversial. Justice Thurgood Marshall wrote a stinging argument against the court's decision, saying affirmative action's real power was addressing years of chattel slavery. Marshall was concerned that changing the policy's mission would dilute its power over time. Ellie disagrees with him, by the way. I personally also believe the diversity argument is better. I think it is more accurate. I think it has much more to do with how a class should get made so that, yes, the farm boy from Iowa has quite a lot to offer um, in this kind of elite ivory tower world. I graduated college. Two of my best friends were a white kid who you know, basically grew up in a swamp in Florida, you know, some kind of crazy like backwoods, like alligator pit. Um, and then. My best man at my wedding is a guy I met at Harvard who grew up in the you know, backwoods, Maine, Stephen King, spooky land, right? My understanding of an issue like gun rights has been informed so much by traveling to alligator pit land and traveling to spooky Stephen King land with these friends of mine and kind of realizing, man, cops be far away, <laughs> 
and they're like animals here. Maybe that shotgun is something that you. What the hell is that? It's a chipmunk, dude. Okay, well I don't know. Like, <laughs> like that that has <laughs> that has helped my experience on something as that I have thought and read about as much as on gun rights. So you're saying you really believe in this idea that diversity is a noble goal. You've seen it in your life. Did other schools change their approach after the Backey opinion came down? Yes, because the second thing the Backey did was outlaw quotas. And qu- quotas, it's the cynical, it's the most cynical possible way of doing it. It does not appreciate diversity. It does not appreciate a holistic contribution to the community. It's just like we gotta fit up, we gotta fill a box, you're black, you'll do come. It's the worst way. And that's when they're trying to use quotas to get people in. What they usually do is use quotas to keep people out. We have enough Jews here. We have enough Asians here. Goodbye. Go find some other school that hasn't filled up all of its Jewish quota. Leave, right? So Backy outlawed quotas, and that meant a lot of these universities that were using them because they were lazy um, had to then figure out how to do diversity. In the years since the Backy decision, the courts continued to limit the scope of affirmative action. One of the cases that did that was brought by Barbara Grutter. She asked the court to intervene when she didn't get into the University of Michigan's law school. So Backy narrowed affirmative action. Grutter came out in 2003, and it narrowed it even more. And it was written by Sandra Day O'Connor. And in her opinion, where she laid out the test for why affirmative action was still okay, just barely, she says, and I am, I think I am quoting this directly, we We assume that within 25 years, racial preferences will no longer be needed. Just, I have never, it is hard to to read a decision where the person writing the decision is disgusted with her own opinion, right? She hates that decision. Republicans hate that decision. I cannot think of another case where the judge said, hopefully in 25 years we can overturn it. Like, that's ridiculous. The problem that I see is not just that we've forgotten why affirmative action is here in the first place, which is, again, the remuneration and the restitution of 400 years of slavery and oppression. It's not just that. It is also because Republicans, white Republicans especially, do not accept diversity itself as an important goal. And that is why affirmative action has been constantly under attack. This latest Harvard case the one a judge ruled on just last week, for now, it looks like a win. The judge's opinion was a moving defense of affirmative action and the ideal of diversity. But looking at the last four decades of case law, Ellie knows this case is not over. So this case is going to be appealed and it'll wind up at the Supreme Court. Yes, where they will kill it. Clarence Thomas would, would... You know how Ruth Bader Ginsburg does all these things to stay alive? (laughs) Like, Clarence Thomas will do whatever he has to do to stay alive to be the guy who kills affirmative action. This is what he wants to do. And they're going to let him do it. Look, if you look at the last affirmative action case, the Fisher, the Abigail Fisher case for Texas, like, that was 5-4, and that was just, that, that was, they didn't kill it during Fisher only because Anthony Kennedy. Kennedy has now been replaced by Brett Kavanaugh. They will kill it. In my experience as a writer and a thinker, there is not one issue that pisses white people off quite like this one. Honestly, the, the, the people who don't like it, the anger, the, 
real feeling that it's deeply unfair is so real for them. And it's funny to me. And I do mean that in a ha-ha funny to me way. Because what you see is that when white people feel like their race is being held against them, even for a second, they lose their minds. They can't handle it. Now, again, I don't think affirmative action is actually racist, but I understand that white people, certain white people who don't like it, feel like it's racist. And that is why that feeling that they are being racially underappreciated is why you have had the commitment to stop the program since it was started, despite its success. Ellie, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. Ellie Mistel writes for The Nation and edits Above the Law. All right, that's the show. What Next is produced by Mary Wilson, Jason DeLeon, Mara Silvers, and Danielle Hewitt. I'm Mary Harris. I will talk to you tomorrow.